work, weather, traffic, cost, health, family, life and death. These are all things we take into consideration when making plans. Those of us with kids have done so probably in the past few months as we look into summer vacations. Others of you have recently moved here to the Bay Area. After months, if not years, of planning and strategizing for a big move for family or work. There's a lot to consider when making plans, whether they involve a weekend with friends or life with a new family. From the minuscule and mundane that we can gather from a quick swipe of Google Maps to the life-changing and significant that takes time and research. But something that we as Christians often do when making plans is to forget the biggest consideration, and that's God. God wants us to be wise and discerning, which means planning for the future and being good stewards of what He has given us. But we see the inherent problem of just pushing ahead with only a view toward family, fun, a better salary, worldly comfort. We have an inherent desire to do what honors the Lord, but how do we plan for that? Does it mean, for example, making sure there's a church where we're going? Does it mean that our long-term budgeting includes giving to the church? Does it mean naming our children after characters in the Bible? While all of these are good and helpful, what's most important is not making sure to include God in your plans but including God in your planning. And this morning, we'll see how to do just that in three considerations for biblical planning. Three considerations for biblical planning that we extract from our next passage in the epistle of James. Turn with me to James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Our passage this morning is James chapter 4, Verses 13 through 17. Let me read that for you. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Again, we will see from this passage three considerations for biblical planning, the first of which is consider the nature of life. Consider the nature of life, that is human life, In verse 13, James begins by explaining the issue that he's addressing. I'll read that again. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. He's addressing the people who say this. This is the planning. This scene is that of a typical businessman planning a business trip. Christians and non-Christians do this, but of course James is addressing Christians. Similar to what someone would do today, this individual is making plans to accommodate his business goals. In the historical context from which James is writing, we know that there were already at that time 
many Jews scattered throughout the ancient world that were very successful in business. And this success for these Jews was propelled by the fact that in world history at this time, there was a huge explosion, a sizable growth in commercial activity. Now for us, it's different today, but the general plan is the same. You plan a journey to visit a particular city. Maybe it's just to call in or Zoom with a particular city. You'll spend some time there. You'll engage in business to make a profit. Nowadays, of course, the journey is shorter. The visit is probably only a few meetings, and the money is made not on that trip per se, but the meetings and that trip are important for that goal. Nevertheless, it is essentially the same thing. You make future plans for the sake of making money. By the way, the principles we will see this morning can be applied to any planning and not just that which involves business. Now, before I go on, I want to make something else very clear. I want to make clear what James is not saying. He is not saying that there is anything wrong with Christians making plans. This is a good thing. In fact, nowhere in Scripture will you find condemnation of good planning or even the execution of that plan. We need to plan. James is also not rebuking the desire to make money if your plans involve business, as in this scenario. James is not rebuking having a successful business or good business sense. None of those things are wrong. What he is rebuking is leaving God out of the plans. In other words, seeking only one's own plans, objectives, business, and will, rather than accommodating God's. In other words, as far as Christians are concerned, their planning, the ones James is addressing, has become self-centered and secular rather than Christ-centered and biblical. And so we understand from this passage that it's not wrong for a Christian to make a plan or to be concerned about the future, but the making of plans, the executing of plans, and the overall perspective of plans cannot be devoid of God. But before James reminds us of why God is so helpful in planning, he explains why we need God in planning in verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. He says you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And he doesn't just say, well, tomorrow can be a rough day. Tomorrow you could get sick. He's implying that tomorrow you may not even exist. You're just a vapor. You're making plans as if you know the future. You're laying out your life as if you know how long you'll live. And don't forget, James says, the nature of human life. First of all, no man knows the future. Well, there's educated guesses, there's reasonable assumptions, scientifically based life expectancies. There are things that we assume don't even think about. I will wake up tomorrow and go to work. We bought these tickets On that day, we will board the plane and we'll fly to a country that will still exist in July. That's all fine. That's normal. But do not forget that you ultimately do not know what the future holds because life is uncertain. 
Plans change. Layoffs occur. People get sick. People die. Markets crash. Desires change. Airports shut down. And as outrageous as this would have sounded just a few years ago, we also know it's possible that airports get shut down because of war. Entire countries locked down because of disease. Freeways are blocked because of protests. Five years ago, we would have never thought this was even conceivable. And so we don't even just, we don't know what will happen, but we also don't know what can happen. Life is uncertain. Not to get depressing, but did you know that just in our small church, there are a handful of people who lost their children when they were teenagers or in their 20s? Life changes. Just in the last five or six months, I've gone to three funerals of members of our church or relatives of members of our church. And although a couple of them were aging, their passing was still unexpected at that moment. You don't know what will happen tomorrow. Life, physical life, is uncertain. There's another aspect of the nature of life that James wants us to consider, and that is the fact that life is fleeting. He compares it here in verse 14 to a vapor that's here one moment and then gone the next. It's the idea of the steam that comes out of your mouth on a cold winter's morning. The vapor that arose out of your coffee mug this morning. You saw it. Maybe you didn't even notice it. You looked up at the clock. You took a bite of your eggs and you looked back and it was gone. You don't bank on the vapors, the steam's longevity. You don't expect it to last for more than a second. And that's what James is saying about life when compared to the big picture of eternity. It is transient. It is passing. We are passing through. In Psalm 39 and verse 5, David says, Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths. It's like the equivalent to a ruler. And my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. To plan for a long life without considering its transitory and unpredictable nature is foolishness. It's the height of foolishness on this earth. And we get this. We get this from a practical standpoint. We have life insurance policies. We have wills and trusts. We have named beneficiaries on our bank accounts. But as Christians, we must be even more aware of this truth because we understand this reality more than others because of our eternal perspective. Because of heaven, frankly, we don't even want to be here. So why plan on earth as if you will be here forever? This largely goes back to recognizing God. We must trust Him and not just a well-thought-out plan for comfort and ease. We live in a world. All day long we are bombarded by commercials and reminders that make us think that planning so that we have enough money when we're 80, 90 years old is priority number one. But that's the world's thinking. We are to have a different mindset. We need to understand and consider the nature of life. So to summarize this first first point, when we make plans, we must consider the nature of life. And that is, life is short and uncertain. 
It's not wrong to plan for retirement or the years ahead. What God wants us to remember is that we are not God. In other words, he's not saying don't schedule a meeting for next Friday because you might be dead next Friday. He's not saying that. He's not saying don't waste your money on plane tickets to Florida for this summer vacation because it might break off from the country and sink into the ocean by August. He's not saying that. What James is saying about the nature of human life and planning for the future only makes sense if you look at the character of God. In other words, the fact that life is short and uncertain in terms of our planning doesn't make any sense unless you understand that James is using it as a lead-in, a background to what he's about to say next, and that leads us to our second consideration for biblical planning. Consider the character of God. Consider the nature of life, but also consider the character of God. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Immediately, we see that James is not saying to throw caution to the wind, don't make plans at all. He's not saying since we don't know what tomorrow holds, let's just play it by ear. Don't plan at all. Again, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when we plan, We are to plan in such a way that recognizes the sovereignty and unchanging character of God. He starts with the word instead. It shows us that he's talking about what he just said, what he quoted that people are saying, the mindset of that businessman. And it shows us that he's going to tell us the better, the biblical alternative to just focusing on yourself and your plans, again, like the businessman did in verse 13. Verse 14, this alternative involves making God's will central to everything you do, making God's character central to everything you do, especially in your plans. When we talk about God's will, I want to give you a little theological aside here. There are two general types or aspects of God's will. Those of you in FOF class know this very well. There's God's revealed will. That's the first type. His revealed will, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is what he has revealed. It's something we know. He has told us. It is in the Bible. It's the will of God that we know for sure because he has written it down for us in the Scriptures. So we talk about the will in the sense of what he wills us to do, what he desires for us to do. It's all the commands in the New Testament that we see. But God's revealed will also includes the parts of his future plans that are revealed in Scripture that may not involve commands for us. So not so much what he desires of us, but what he himself will do. For example, it is revealed that he will return. He will come again. We are told this part of his plan that he will build a new heavens and a new earth. We are told that he will give us glorified bodies one day. And to put it simply, God's revealed will is everything and anything in the Bible. He has revealed it to us. The other type of God's will is God's hidden will. We know that God is sovereign. He has plans for every aspect of the universe, including, of course, every aspect of your life. But we don't know the majority of it. It's hidden. He knows it. He's planned it. It's already done in his mind, but he has not told us what that involves. 
On a large scale, for example, we know that Christ is going to return. Again, that's part of his revealed will. But we don't know when. That's hidden. It's not because he doesn't know. He knows. He's just hidden it from mankind. When it comes to our lives, we have general commands and his revealed will, but the details are part of his hidden will. For example, you know that God wants you to be part of a church. That's in the Bible. That's revealed. But he doesn't tell each and every one of us which church. That's not in the Bible. It couldn't be. How, could he, how big would our Bible be if he told us all the names of all the churches throughout history in, all over the world? His hidden will also involves things that we aren't commanded to do, but that he is still sovereign over. We're not commanded to marry, but those of us who are married or will be married, he knows who we will marry. He knew before you met your spouse that you would marry that individual but it's, it was hidden for us. We didn't know that. He hasn't told us where you should go to school, where you should work, at exactly what age you should retire, where you should live when you retire. Again, those things are not commanded, but they are still part of his hidden will because he is sovereign and he has planned all of that out. So all of those aspects of God's hidden will, back to James, is what James is talking about here. When James says that we are to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that, he is referencing our need to acknowledge not just the short and uncertain nature of life, but also the character of God. That simple phrase, if the Lord wills, puts us in the correct mindset. Then we are free to make plans as we wish so long as we understand and submit to God's authority and bring him into it. Again, James is not condemning or prohibiting making plans, even lifelong long-term plans. What he is doing is telling us to recognize that no matter what we want, do, or plan, God is in control. I was explaining to my boys this morning, when you expect a certain thing after church, in this particular conversation, it was screens. When you already make plans and say, I am going to get on this game and I'm going to do this, you will be disappointed when you don't get screens. Spoiler alert, they're not going to. But if you say, if we earned it, if we did our chores and our parents let us have screens, then we will do this and that. You will be less disappointed when you don't get screens, but also more thankful if you do. As long as God's will is central to your planning and life, then you are planning biblically. Because I know when we say things like this, when we look at the people say, well, how do I do that? That's actually, I believe, one of the questions for small groups this week. But just focus on God. Understand that He is sovereign. Desire what he desires, and then you'll be planning biblically. We need to first stick to God's revealed will. In other words, we don't plan in a way that is sinful, nor do we plan for sin. And it may not just be blatant sin. It may be a failure to put him first, godliness first. 
For example, don't just plan for a nice job four years in college or moving somewhere more affordable than California without first making sure there is a solid church nearby that is close enough that you will truly attend. It also means that when you plan, that you make sure that you can maintain your biblical roles as husband or wife in that new job, place, or education. But, more to James's point, we also need to make God's will central to our planning by affirming His sovereignty, His control over all things. Again, we must connect this to verses 13 and 14. Recognizing the nature of life only is defeatist and depressing. But if you connect it to the power and control of God, then it all makes sense. And notice how James keeps it general. Lord willing, we should say, first, we will live. We say Lord willing all the time. But usually, we don't think because I might be dead. We think, well, I might not make it. Something might come up. You guys know my family and I. We don't even make long-term plans without a caveat that one of our kids might be in the hospital. That's just our lives now, right? Lord willing, something may happen. But James brings us back to the reality of the big picture. You may not even be alive. We are not even to assume we will be alive for any length of time unless it is within God's plan, but that's hidden. We don't know. So we need to recognize that. We know that as helpful as lifestyle and modern medicine are, it is ultimately only God who controls life and death. Listen to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39. God speaking says, It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Even Job, in the midst of his complaining in Job 12.10, says that the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind is in God's hand. So consider that it's only within God's will that you will live or die. After living, there's a second generality James mentions in regard to the Lord's control and will. And if you start wondering, like, what aspects of my planning should I submit to the Lord? He says, and also do this or that. This generalization shows us that this perspective applies to everything. Because I think you'd agree that everything, anything you could possibly plan for, falls under this or that. He keeps it general on purpose. It's all-encompassing. And this all goes back, life and this or that, it all goes back to the phrase, if the Lord wills. I think we more commonly today says, God willing or Lord willing. This expression of reliance upon God is known as the Jacobian condition, if the Lord wills. And it comes from this verse, Jacobian, simply because Jacobus is Latin for James. Although this is named after James in this verse, we find it all over the New Testament. In the Gospels, even in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done. You even see at the end of the Gospels, Christ's submission to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of my favorite scenes, one of my favorite passages, because it sees, you see the humanity of Christ. Father, let this cup pass from me, the cup referring to the crucifixion, 
the emotional and physical pain, but then how does he end it? But not my will, but yours be done. Even in Christ, Lord willing. Although uh, we keep going and we see an Acts in the life of the apostles, in Acts 18, Paul tells the Ephesians, I will return to you again if God wills. We see this in the writings of the apostles. Paul tells the Romans that he prays in such a way that if by the will of God, he may be able to see them again. In regard to the suffering of his Christian audience, Peter tells them that if God should will that they suffer for doing good, then that would be better than doing wrong. If God wills. If in pursuing good, in pursuing God's commands, godliness, If it is his will that you suffer for that, then that's better than doing sin. That's 1 Peter 3.17. But there's something very important to note here. Although there are a handful of times that we see the apostles and even Jesus himself say, if the Lord wills, most of the time they don't. Which tells us that this is a heart attitude. It is a mindset that we know they had. It's not so much actually saying the words. In fact, there's no point in saying, Lord willing, if you don't actually believe it. If it's just something you say as a Christian because you're supposed to. There's nothing magical about uttering those words that will somehow bless your activities and make you trust the Lord. You have to say it because you believe it. Or say it to make yourself believe it. Rather, we must adopt a constant perspective of trusting God's sovereignty. And this perspective should be the lenses through which we view anything past right now. So if you have the right mindset, if you have the right heart, it would actually be impossible to say Lord willing every time you believe it. Because you're to believe it about everything. Bowl, Lord willing. Cereal, Lord willing. Opening cereal, Lord willing. Getting milk, Lord willing. Cleaning up the spill, Lord willing. That's how we view everything, and you can't say it all the time. But naturally, practically, we tend to say if God wills when we make larger plans, and that's fitting. But don't forget the overarching principle. Life is short and uncertain, but God is sovereign and unchanging. Although the latter does not come out directly in James' words, it is inherent in our ability to trust God. He doesn't change. There are a lot of human beings that we think don't change. Man, I ran into this guy the other day. I haven't seen him in 20 years. He's just like he was in high school. But when we say God doesn't change, that also means his will doesn't change, both revealed and hidden wills. So not only can we trust that he will always be sovereign, we can also trust that what his word declares as right or wrong will always be right or wrong, and so you can plan according to his word no matter what, no matter when. And so to summarize, when making plans, consider the character of God. That is, God is sovereign and unchanging. Let's go to our third and final consideration for biblical planning. We have seen, firstly, consider the nature of life. Life is short and uncertain. Consider the character of God. God is sovereign and unchanging. And thirdly, consider the problem of independence. 
consider the problem of independence. And here James moves from the cold, hard facts about human life and the cold, hard facts about God to spiritual realities that will occur if we do not plan according to those said facts. In other words, if we plan independently of God. James 4.16, But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. In contrast to what they are supposed to do, indicated by the but as it is, James's readers plan their business and lives as if God does not exist. And in so doing, he says, they are boasting in their arrogance. And that's the fundamental problem, arrogance. There's a certain kind of pride in oneself when someone confidently plans their future without involving anyone else, especially God. Although they may not audibly brag with their words, their actions show that they are doing so. Their actions loudly announce their independence from the Lord. Like a child insisting that they can cross the street without holding mommy's hand, they proclaim, I can do it myself. And because God is invisible and cannot be physically felt, it seems like you are doing it yourself. But you are under the guidance and watchful eye of the Father, just like that child crossing the street. As believers, we know better. We know better than to arrogantly assume that our future is ours and disconnected from the power and will of God. And when we don't, we are boasting in our arrogance. We are boasting through our accomplishments, our business ventures, our family vacations, our successes, our 401ks. Here's the thing about boasting. The very word means to brag about something that you don't really have or can't really get. And that is true when we understand that it is ultimately God's power that controls the future, not us. You can't have that. You can't have control over the future. Again, we try to plan wisely to do as much as we can from our end. But it may all end as we walk out of church today. Things may crash. Things disappear. Although we are at this very moment, right now, as you sit here, as I stand here, at this very moment, living out what just moments ago would be considered our future, the reality is that this present is not something we obtained on our own. Acknowledge Him or not, you needed Him to get to right now. And as with all boasting in Scripture, outside of the boasting in God and the things of God, this kind of boasting is evil. Why? Because it is perceived and practical independence from God. Proverbs 27 and verse 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. And James goes on to state a general truth in verse 17, but keep in mind that this is still within the context of making future plans. James 4.17, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Earlier, I gave you two kinds or aspects of God's will, revealed and hidden. 
Let me keep the pattern going and allow me to explain what in the Scriptures we have as two kinds of sin. They are the sins of commission and the sins of omission. Sins of commission are just like what it sounds like. They are sins that you actively commit. It is doing something that is sinful. It is doing something that God forbids. Anger, murder, theft, jealousy, all of those things. The sins of omission involve not doing, omitting, something that God has commanded you to do. You omit an act of obedience. For example, you don't pray. You don't evangelize. You don't give. You don't attend church. You don't encourage others. Things that are commanded that you don't do. Okay? Sins of commission, you do something that's forbidden in Scripture. Sins of omission, you don't do something that you're supposed to do. That's something that's commanded in Scripture. It is this second one that James is addressing in the context of planning. He says that, not, that knowing, rather, knowing the right thing to do and not doing it, omitting it, sins of omission, is sin. This is true not just of what he's talking about in this context, but anything that God commands. We have to recognize this is very important, not just in planning, but in everything. The sins of omission are as serious as the sins of commission. Now, sometimes we forget that because the sins that we commit, there are actions that are tangible, that we see, that we hear, that we can remember. They involve words and actions that we wish we could go back in time and take back. They affect other people. The sins of omission, however, tend to bother us less because by their very nature, they involve us doing nothing, just living life. We didn't actively do something that was sinful. We just did nothing. But that was sinful because we didn't do what was commanded. There's no action that has hurt anyone that we wish we hadn't done. You don't have to actually do anything to sin in this way, which makes it easier to fall into as well as easier to overlook. Let's think about it. You're in a conversation. You get mad and you criticize someone to their face. Second conversation, different people. You sat and listened like a good friend. You didn't say anything. And you didn't encourage the person, you just remained silent. Which conversation do you feel worse about? Both of them involve sins. Because one you attacked, sin of commission, and one you didn't encourage, sin of omission. Which do you see the need to go back and apologize for? That's why we need to be extra careful, extra aware of the sins of omission because there's no deed we have done that reminds us of our sinfulness. But they're both bad. They're both equally bad. They're both sin. And we, as we saw earlier in James, breaking the law is breaking the law regardless of what part you break. For example... Some of you are not going to like this example. Husbands, not leading your wives is as sinful as having an affair. Same goes for women who don't submit to their husbands. Not sharing the gospel with someone is just as sinful 
as lying to them. Still God's commands. We have to take them seriously. You get the point. The Christian who knows the right thing to do and does not do it is sinning. And within this context, the right thing to do that we often fail to do is involving God in our planning. But, as with all sins of omission, it's not necessary to continue in this sin. Just involve God. Just think about His sovereignty. Recognize. Don't just say. Recognize and believe if the Lord wills, we will do such and such. And when you do that, in a mindset that desires to honor God in all things, make those plans. Put money away for retirement. Put money away for your kids. Take those college tours with your children who are graduating from high school. Research jobs. Do your budget. Look for the the highest pay that's being offered. Whatever it is, that's fine. But just don't rush ahead Charge on ahead as if God didn't exist. I want to make very clear, and I know I'm repeating this over and over again, but this isn't saying that we don't plan or that it's sinful to plan. This isn't saying just, I'm going to take the hit, I'm going to take the fees and the taxes and just cash out my 401k because James says don't plan. He never says don't plan. Just do so wisely understanding that things change. Things may happen. The Lord may return. That's a good thing. Just involve God and plan in a biblical way. So to summarize this last point, when making plans, consider the problem of independence. That is, independence is sinful and unnecessary. As you move forward, as you make plans, Seek His will, and as much as you understand it from His Word and His Word alone, based on those biblical principles, we submit to His his authority, we acknowledge that He is in control of all things, we acknowledge that the death of a Christian is a wonderful thing because we are ushered into His presence, and then we make plans because He has put us here on this planet. We need to have money to do things, to be good stewards, to pay bills, to not have creditors knocking on our doors and be a a bad testimony of the name of Jesus Christ. But as we've said, actually several times now we've seen this in the book of James, making money, comfort, sustenance on this planet is not the goal. It is a means to an end. What's the end? What's the goal? Glorifying God. Through those things, yes, very often, but that's not the goal. The goal is not just to make money. You make money so that you can live, first of all. You can eat. You can survive in some form of shelter so that you can preach the gospel, so that you can lead your children, so that you can honor God at your work evangelize your coworkers. That's a good perspective too. You don't just have that job. God didn't just put you at that job 
so that you could just forget about him for 40, 50 hours a week and then go do the ministry at home and at church. No, that is your ministry. Those people need the Lord. And the more nasty they are towards you, the more compassion you should have because it just shows how wicked they are. And nothing will change that. Not human resources, not the CEO, nothing will ultimately change that except for salvation. Now again, when appropriate, according to the rules of your workplace, you need to report to HR when you need to report to HR. Again, we're not saying to disregard those things. You've heard me say, those of you who are members, we talk about this in membership class, that there are certain crimes that are crimes. And we will not try to handle that in-house. On a spiritual level, we will. But if someone needs to be arrested, Chris and I are going to call the police. We don't just try to handle it in-house. Okay? We do use the world. We're in the world. We're just not of the world. And that's how we should view all of our planning. Is it Why do you keep hounding about money and finances? What do you plan for? Come on, be honest. It's mostly money. It's mostly the future. It's, and that's good. We have financial planners here. Talk to them. They'll help you do it in a biblical way. But we need to be careful. Outside of money too. Kids. Life. I don't want to keep bringing up the, the sad parts of your lives, but people had plans. People had plans for their kid to go to college. Life was taken at the age of 16. We have a faithful member that many of you, unless you joined our church, if you joined our church within the last four or five months, you've never met her. For these past four or five months, she had plans to do stuff, come to church, spend time with her grandkids, but she's too sick and weak from chemotherapy, whatever therapy she's going through for her cancer. By the way, pray for her. Her last treatment is the end of this month, in a week or so. Plans change, but there's also good things that happen that make your plans change. Wives get pregnant. You get a save-the-date Wedding invitation of a, of a family member or a close friend. Well, can't go on that vacation. We've got to be at this wedding. Whatever it may be. And so we need to understand that we make plans. We want to make sure our, our futures are secure in a biblical way. But consider these three things. The nature of life is short and uncertain. The character of God is sovereign and unchanging. And independence is sinful and unnecessary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your clear teaching. Even as we live day to day on this planet, as we wait for your return or for you to take us home, we look forward to being faithful stewards and testimonies, followers of Christ while we are here on earth. Help us to plan well according to the resources and abilities you have so graciously given us, but may we always recognize that you have so graciously given those things to us. May we recognize your character as well as the nature of life and do not live in a way that practically shows an independence from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.